Hey guys, this is Matt Bearden here. I am filling in for Buddy. Um, it's an honor to get to speak before you today, and to any, any of those that are listening uh, uh, here and abroad, we appreciate you tuning in. We're going to get started today. I have a question. Um, how much would I have to pay you to not mention the name of God? And there is a point to this question. Any name that we think of. <laughs> no, no sneaking it in. To avoid it entirely. Couldn't do it, right? Yeah. Would you, would you be, you, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, I wouldn't waver at all on that. Like, of course, I'm, I'm going to speak the name of God. I'm not going to, someone pays me off. I'm not going to just stop talking about him. But uh, what if I told you there, there is a soccer player that this has happened to. And he caved in, unfortunately. And uh, um, I, I forget his last name, but his first name is Ronald. It's not Ronaldo, okay? But um, but his first name is Ronald. And he is paid every month $461,000 to not mention the name of God. Because when he first started doing soccer for the big leagues, he was mentioning God and wearing verses and that kind of stuff. But the people you know the people of the higher ups were upset at this and basically offered him half a million dollars a month to not and he took it um and so i ask you that question because that is a large amount of money and i imagine at first he probably thought like us like no there's no way he's my king he's my jesus i'm not gonna do it but somewhere along the lines, maybe from pressure, maybe from the amount of money he caved into that. And that's an unfortunate thing. And it, it just, it, it, it scares me in, in the sense of we need to always be vigilant and holding on to his name because it's worth more than any penny, any amount of money that someone could ever give us. Um, but... One of the verses that he would sport is one that you probably know. So I ask you another question. What is probably the most popular or most well-known verse in the entire world? John 3.16. It's pretty universal. All right, from Tim Tebow to basketball players to even to the soccer player, this is a very common verse. And the unfortunate thing is, is that... Uh, this verse is sometimes, but it becomes cliche. We tend to not think about when we hear John three sixteen. We just we don't tend to think about the implications of it. We tend to just hear it and like, oh, that's that's that popular verse. But this verse is the very anthem of redemption. It's it's not something to skip over. That's the reason it's so popular. Is because of how important it actually is. Some people would even argue that. The gospel is summed up in this verse. Yeah. So, today we're going to break down John 3.16 a little bit. And we'll be looking at some other passages as well. But we're just going to read it. All of us, most of us know it by heart. But I'm just going to read it. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, this verse, there's not a price that you can put on this verse. 
if someone told me I couldn't sport this verse on my helmet or on my sneaker, it's just not worth it because this is the verse that saves people. You know, of course, it's God that saves, but this is the verse that helps lead them to him. But I want to just break this down today. It seems that everywhere we turn to today, most of what we see and hear is, is bad news, whether it's from COVID to hunger to murder in our streets, race wars and other things like it. There's so much, and that's an understatement, there's so much bad news. <sighs> riots and more riots. It seems from uh, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, all it seems to be is bad news all the time. It's very rare that you see an article of good news, and honestly, it's refreshing when you do hear of some good news in the world on any of those platforms. But I've got good news for you today, and the good news, of course, is the gospel. They say that there's no other passage that says so much to so many in so few words as John 3.16 does. And I would stand by that. In this verse, we have a volume in a verse, an ocean in a dewdrop, and a continent in a cup. This is where the world's greatest love story can be found. And as I said at the beginning, it's the very anthem of redemption. You see, you start out saying it and you wind up singing it. It's that kind of verse. And, you know, coming from someone that was an atheist, even I heard this verse back when I was an atheist, and even I was like, you know, there is something about this verse that is meaningful. And it means even so much more now that I am a Christian because it reminds me of those days and how dark they actually were versus how bright they are now. You know, someone once said, it's too fair to touch, too good to be true, and too far away to be real. That's not so. The critics may ask, how can this be? How could God love us this much? Is it so? I say it is so. Frederick Faber, in his famous hymn, wrote, For the love of God is broader than the measure of a man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. He is eternal and he does not change. This is the God that we serve. God does not change. Let's uh, turn to Hebrews 13.8. We're just going to kind of jump there for a moment. But I just think about that little line. For the love of God is broader than the measure of a man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. But Hebrews 13.8 says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God is the same. The same God that walked with Adam and Eve in the garden is the same God that you and I trust in today. If you trust in him, he'll be as true to you as he was to Abram when he was called out to go. And Abram didn't know where he was going. This is Abram was called Abram before he was called Abraham. But Abram was called out not knowing where he was to go, but he was called to trust. He will be as evident to you as he was to Moses and the burning bush. So John 3.16 has a story to tell. You know, his love is, it's hard to define because God does not love us because we are lovely or lovable. His love does not exist on account of our character, but his character. God does not love us because we are valuable, but we are valuable because God loves us. God does not love us because Jesus died for us, but Jesus died for us because 
He loves us. His love is stronger than sin. It's mightier than sorrow. And it's, uh, excuse me, his love is stronger than sin. It's deeper than sorrow. And it's mightier than death. It's the world's greatest love story and the very anthem of redemption. See, there are four parts to this verse, and I'd like to break them down. <clears throat> Let's just examine them, and because they can tell us a little bit about salvation. The first one is the cause. The cause is, for God so loved the world. Loves us all. He made us. That's the cause, for God so loved the world. The second is the cost for salvation, His only begotten Son. The first is the cause, for God so loved the world. The second is the cost, His only begotten Son. Now, salvation is free, but it is not cheap. It costs the sinner nothing, but it costs God, His Son. The third is the condition, that whosoever believeth in Him. So now we have the cause, for God so loved the world. The cost, His only begotten Son. And the condition, that whosoever believeth in Him. The fourth part is my favorite part, and it's the consequences. And the consequences are good. Usually when we think of consequences, we think of bad consequences. This is great consequences. It says this, should not perish, but have everlasting life. So first we have the cause, for God so loved the world, the cost, his only begotten son, the condition that whosoever believeth in him, and the consequences of believing in him, that they should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a mighty fine consequence. A double promise is given, should not perish, and shall have everlasting life. You know, there are some strange beliefs about who God is. Some think of him as like a lawman or a deputy ready to spring into action only when we need him. Then some have in mind an old man idea. This is most commonly the idea that I hear proposed, especially in the circles I used to run in, is... This idea that he's some old man that has a big beard that has trouble getting up out of his chair and just lets the world do its thing. There's a problem with this because it's not true. They act like he has trouble checking in on us. And then there's those that take a there's those that take a more philosophical approach. Now I'm not old enough to have been around at this time, but I know that in nineteen sixty five some theologians got together and helped publish the famous Time magazine. All of us have seen it. Is God dead? Yep, is God dead? This should not surprise us. We look at Psalm 14.1. Now, this verse used to make me angry as an atheist, but now it makes a lot more sense. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. You see, when I was an atheist, I used to get angry with this verse. This whole, you calling me a fool, but... Without God, there's nothing else to be called. Now, you shouldn't, if you do meet an atheist, I don't recommend this being your, your first go-to verse. But without God, it seems like everything else is foolish. When you know that there is a God, you know how wonderful he is and how great his love is, to not believe in him does seem like abject, just foolish, yeah, foolishness. You see, but when I reread this verse as a Christian, he addresses the believers too. There is none who does good. We are all in need of a Savior, is what it seems to me. In the words of S.M. Lockridge, and he was a pastor around the time that this magazine came out, 
Um, and I wish I had the quick wittedness that he does with this answer because it's, it's great. But he was asked if God is dead. He said, it makes me want to ask some stupid and senseless questions like, who assassinated God? What coroner was called? Who signed his death certificate? And who was so well acquainted with the one pronounced dead that he could identify the deceased? What obituary column did you find his name in? And why was I not notified I'm a member of the family? <laughs> now, that's some quick-wittedness. I, I just, I don't know how he did it, but that's great. Um, but the thing is, is that God does not die. He does not sleep. He's not doing any of these things. He does not die by assassination nor by pronouncement. He just simply won't die. You try to steal him by the, you try to destroy him by the seal of an empire, he'll break it. You try to destroy him by fire, he'll just not burn. You try to store him by water, he'll just walk on the water. He just can't be defeated. Psalm 90, verse 2 says this Before the mountains were brought forth, <clears throat> or ever, you have formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. This is to show that God has been God from beginning to the end. Before the mountains were even brought forward, he was God. God has always been, he simply is. Popular question in the 70s, some of you will remember, is where did God come from? Where did God come from? He called light out of darkness, order out of chaos, and brought forth logic out of confusion. But it still needs an answer. And the Bible actually gives us an inter interesting answer on this. He came from nowhere. And if you don't believe me, you should look at uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3. It <clears throat> says this. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3. God came from Teman, and the Holy One, Mount Paran, Salah, his glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Well, if you do a quick research on the word Teman, because it says God came from Teman, what does Teman mean? Teman means nowhere or nothing. God came from nowhere or nothing. So God has no beginning, he has no end, and he came from nowhere and nothing, and that's my God. He is not limited by the same things that we're limited by. We're limited by time, space, and matter. We're limited by, you know, the time, the things that we have here on this earth, and everything on this earth can go wrong, but he's not limited by such things. I think that's why we have such a hard time answering this question, is because we can't think outside of the box that we are in. But he's the one that invented the box. <clears throat> but I've gotten ahead of myself. You see, we must understand the bad news before we can appreciate just how sweet the good news actually is. The good news being John 3.16. You see, um, many of y'all in this room know when I had my uh, bone infection, uh, I had a bone infection in my right leg, and the doctor made it pretty clear to me that I had a week to see if things were going to turn around. And it was obviously a very scary time in my life. I was dating Jill at the time, and... You know, there was nothing more I wanted in the whole world than to marry Jill and be with Jill. But being told that you have a week to see if things are going to turn around, and if not, I'm sorry, has a way of sobering you up really fast. But the thing is, is that even while I was in that hospital, and they did their surgery, moving, uh, removing flesh and bone and all nastiness from me, when they were pumping me full of antibiotics, I tell you, there was not a time in my life where I grew closer to God where I felt his presence more and more than I ever had before. And 
I had to come to a, a sobering conclusion that whether I lived or I died, that God was still good and just in everything that he did. And that God was with me, no matter if I walked out of the hospital or if I didn't. Now, I'm thankful that I did because I got to marry Jill. I got to uh, become a part of this wonderful family and meet a lot of people. And that's been a great blessing in my life. But And I'm thankful for that. And God is good for that. But he would have been equally as good had I not. Because I would have been okay. I would have been an atheist who had found Christ. And that's enough. See, we all have a story to tell. And the truth is that we are paid what we are owed. Um, famous verse, Romans 3.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans 3.23. The truth is, is that we are paid what we are owed. For the wages of sin is death. Our sin has earned us. We have earned, just like we do a paycheck, we have earned death. But Romans 3.23 tells us that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isaiah 59.2, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. We see that sin plays an important role in our relationship with God, and that Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. He's the one that brings that bridge together, that helps us to set things right. See, but then I think about that cliche, stereotypical verse. I think about John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Suddenly, when you think about how bad we are without him, suddenly that verse comes to life. And it doesn't become just some stereotypical verse written on the side of someone's helmet or on someone's sneaker. Suddenly it becomes the very anthem of redemption. Suddenly it becomes the very cornerstone of our lives. Suddenly it becomes something that we want to tell everyone about. And I go back to the beginning, nothing says so much to so many in so few words. So I can't think of any, a better verse to tell someone than John 3.16. See, <clears throat> we have to understand the bad news and understand the weight and significance of that, of what we deserve. And then we can understand how awesome and awe-inspiring it is what Christ endured for us on the cross. What he took upon himself and endured for us. You see, you can't have mountains without valleys. You can't have sunshine without darkness. A pianist must play the black and the white keys. All these things have to be in balance, right? You can't appreciate the valley until you've been on a mountain long enough. You can't appreciate the sunlight until you've been in enough darkness. And sometimes the darkness is its own relief as well. Sometimes you need a break from the day. Something to let you take a rest. God has ordered everything in such a beautiful way that it helps us. And like I said, the pianist must play the black and the white keys. Both were of equal importance. Acts 16.30 says this, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Saved. You know, I struggled when I first became a Christian with understanding it, 
understanding how simple it is to believe in Jesus and to be saved, understanding that that process, but understanding how difficult it was for him and what he endured. It was so hard for me to to understand how free and and uh, how free and awesome that gift was. I thought, man, surely there's something. I, I genuinely, when I first became a Christian, I thought there's something I have to do. I genuinely thought that. I didn't know any better. I thought there's no way it's this easy. Then someone was reading to me this verse says, "This is Paul, and he's telling this this jailer, you know, what what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household." And suddenly it becomes clear to me, it's like, his love is that strong, that powerful. He's not asking me to, to go out and make some pilgrimage. He's not asking me to do this thing. He says, no, I just want you to believe in me. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I'll change you from the inside out and transform the man that you are into a better man. That's a powerful love. But then I just think, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, we ought to believe in him because he's no fable. He is the living God who made you and formed you in the womb and everyone you know and love. Just as he walks with you today, he walked with your grandparents. He walked with everyone that's ever come from your lineage, had they known him. All the way back to Adam and Eve. <clears throat> See, it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter if you think that you're good enough. Because the truth is, none of us are good enough. We all have major flaws. But we ought to just believe in him. The one with a crown of thorns and nail-pierced hands. You see, and this is one thing I love. It doesn't take the vote of the church to get someone into heaven. Oh boy, we'd be in trouble if it did. It doesn't take the vote of the church. It doesn't need a license or an ordination because Jesus Christ is the, the King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the high priest. We ought to just believe in him. I know that some people say, I won't believe in him until God comes down and shows himself to me. But would you believe me if I told you that he did and we killed him for it? What if it's that God is so amazing, so awe-inspiring, so good, that when he comes down and reveals to us how good he is, we can't handle it, and we put him on a cross for it? But even us doing that is an act of his love and obedience to the Father? I can't comprehend it in my, my three-pound brain. I just can't, I can't do it, but I have to trust in him. People say there's no proof. That's nonsense. What do you mean there's, there's no proof? Like the proof that we have archaeological proof in our fossil record of a great flood. Or how every, how every region on earth has ancient stories talking about Noah's flood and an ark. What do you mean no proof? We're talking about continents that were separated for you know hundreds to thousands of years. They all have accounts of a flood. What do you mean there's no proof? Like how in Exodus 14, God tells the Israelites to encamp near Hiharoth, uh, beach on the beach there and how in the 1980s they did a research expedition and found horse bones and chariot wheels and Egyptian jewelry all throughout the underwater sand dunes from Hiharoth to the other side of the Red Sea. This is not some fable that we're dealing with. This is, this is the, the great thing about our Bible. 
Where other holy books, if you will, fail is that there's no proof to back them up. Whereas ours, there is a long historical trail of history, archaeological evidence, and just science to back up what the Bible is telling us. And to think that our God is so awesome and so intelligent that he gave a very very planned and detailed map for Moses to follow, to take them to this exact beach that you can visit today, that they don't let you do expeditions at anymore, by the way, but underneath this exact beach, and it's marked by a pillar. If you remember from the story, there's a pillar that they left behind. That pillar is still there. And it's an amazing thing to think about. But it shows us just how amazing he really is. The, the fact that underneath that those sand dunes in the water, that at that exact beach, that there is Egyptian jewelry, horse bones, and chariot wheels hundreds of miles away from where they should have been. I told this to an, an atheist friend of mine once, and he said, well, that's just high tide and low tide. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, do you understand how far away they were from where they, where they were coming from? And it's all in this exact spot. I'm like, this is more than coincidence, my friend. It's hard to chalk this up to high tide and low tide. It is. It was great. Um, or have we have more documentation of Jesus Christ walking the earth than we do Alexander the Great? And only one of these two people are taught as historical figures. And it's not just by some small amount. It's by landslides. <clears throat> we have over 24,000 um, uh, documents that point to the New Testament. We could recreate the New Testament just by quotes from old historical figures alone. We don't even have to have those documents, but it's just a beautiful thing that we do. It shows how God preserves his word. But even just from uh, early Christians and even secular people, quotes from them, we could recreate almost the entire New Testament. God has preserved his word in an amazing way. Or how we learn that the earth is round from Job 26.10 and Isaiah 40.22, the earth is circular. Or better yet, I think the greatest proof of all is you and me. And I don't mean how great we are, I mean how complex we are. Right now, you're listening to me. I'm literally making vibrations in my esophagus, and you're understanding them as coherent words with meaning and and. And depicts, yeah, you're able to decipher what I'm telling you by simple vibrations in my throat. To me, that's beyond anything of comprehension. We forget how amazing life is because everything seems to become mundane and regular to us, but there's nothing regular about it. And to me, it's a beautiful thing how complex the mind and, and, and just the body is. It's simply one of the, the greatest examples in my opinion of of god's creation and and i don't think there's a single person in this room that could ever say they looked into the eyes of a newborn baby and and never thought to themselves oh yeah this this can't be from god you always think that it's from god even when i held my nephew back when before i was a christian i thought well there's something to this there was some doubt sowed in my own way of thinking yeah there's a little human being here. You see, we think about how awesome our, our, our Christ is and how much he endured for us. There was a tragic Friday afternoon 
There was a gloomy Saturday and there was a victorious Sunday morning. But then I come back to that simple, simple yet beautiful verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we all have a story to tell. And the story to tell is is how wonderful and awesome God is. We, I many many of y'all have heard this analogy before, but I think it's a beautiful and great analogy, um, the tapestry analogy. So, each of us, you know, what if you've looked at a tapestry before, you've seen how beautiful they are. They're just wonderful pieces of art that I have no idea how they work. They are absolutely incredible. You see them in medieval castles. You see them in, um. Sometimes a lot of people that are older might have them, and they're just beautiful. I love them. But you ever looked at the back of a tapestry? It's the most confusing, jumbled mess. In like that, you I could never decipher what anything means on the back of it, or a sweater. Exactly. But that's how I think about our lives. Our lives are this crazy, jumbled mess that make no sense, and it's confusing and it's hard. And if you look at it for too long, you're like, man, this doesn't make sense. But at the end of it, when you flip that over, it's a beautiful picture of God saving mankind and saving each one of us individually. It is. Yeah. And then when you see the whole thing, it starts to make sense of what his plan was all along. We can't see it right now. And we shouldn't. I think that's part of it is that it's not within our cards to be able to see his plan. because That's how great it is. So each of us have a story to tell, and we think about that. I think about that tapestry, how our life, it may not make sense right now, but one day we'll see the picture complete. And part of that picture being completed was what Jesus did on the cross for us. So I come back to the beginning. We look at this verse. We look at the cause. For God so loved the world. We look at the cost, his only begotten son. We look at the condition that whosoever believeth in him, and the best part is the consequences, should not perish but have everlasting life. We should tell that story to everyone we know. We should tell the story of our lives. We should tell our testimonies. And another thing on testimonies is, yes, we all have a testimony of coming to Christ, but I'd like to argue that your testimony isn't fully complete until you die. Your life stands as a testimony. When I die, that's when my testimony will be fully complete. The best part of the testimony is already over with. He saved me. That's the climax, right? But everything else is still ongoing. Each one of us have a story to tell, and we should tell it until every town is redeemed, until every house becomes a house of prayer, until every family is restored and, and giving glory to God. Easier said than done, but... Those are high and lofty goals, but those are worthy goals. Sometimes we put down goals that sound too lofty, but sometimes those lofty goals are the ones that we need to strive towards. But we should tell it until every sinner is saved by grace. I would have him read Psalm 19 that yeah. talks about the word of God is like gold. Right. So 
from the honey cup. The money that he sold out for doesn't even compare to the riches he can have by all the souls that would be saved by his testimony. Right. If he would turn his life around. Right. And say, and, and go back to, you know, John three sixteen and witnessing the people. Right. It, it's better than heaven. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it and it makes me appreciate people like Tim Tebow all the more mm-hmm. who against not that I agree with him on everything, but right. just against all the pressure that's been put on him for over a decade now. He he doesn't yeah, he won't compromise. And it just makes you appreciate someone with that type of uh, zeal for that. But yeah. In the platform. Yeah. That he has. Exactly. Um, you wonder and we won't know until we get to heaven. How many people were saved by his testimony? Right. And he won't even know. Yeah. Know, except for those who come and say, I read your book or I heard you and that changed my life. Now I'm saved. Right. He might get a few of those, but the total testimony he gets, yeah. he won't know until he gets to heaven. I bet that's going to be a, oh, that's going to be a humbling experience for him. But yeah, but that's all I have for you today. Um, No, thank y'all. Bye, everyone. Bye.